Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is our second crossover episode. This week, we've teamed up with our friends at No Such Thing as a Fish to make No Such Thing as a Guilty Feminist. We hope you enjoy. And just to let you know, before you get to the podcast, The Guilty Feminist is coming to America. The first date is Saturday, the 4th of January at Gramercy Theatre in New York. Advanced sales start today, Wednesday, the 18th of September at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. For the link and the special pre-sale code word, look in the show notes or go to guiltyfeminist.com. Now that's the regular Guilty Feminist, but back to the crossover season. We've got more of these episodes coming out on Wednesdays, as well as the regular Guilty Feminist every Monday. This episode was tons of fun, and we were joined by special guest Athena Kiblenyu. Enjoy! I'm a feminist, but I was truly delighted when backstage Dan Schreiber looked around and said, Where's Anna? She always brings my beer on stage. (laughs) I have to give my beer to Anna. She carries it out onto the stage for me. And I looked at him and he went, oh no, like, yeah, but in a good way. (laughs) 
good way. In a good way, Anna always <laughs> waits on me yeah. and brings me alcoholic beverages when I'm like, you're the a, only think... woman. It, I know, but I, finishing school meant that I'm very good at carrying those drinks <laughs> extremely evenly. I think it's a real show of trust, knowing the way that Anna goes through beer. Mm. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but uh, just a few minutes ago, I learned that I'm not. <laughs> We've been telling you you're not for years, and you never listen. Yeah. Should I do an actual one? I think you should. Uh, well, I'm a feminist, but uh, when a woman once asked me out, the only reason I said yes was I was new to stand-up, and I badly needed material. <laughs> what? Yeah. But, unfortunately, I didn't actually get any material out of it. She, on the other hand, loved hearing about stand-up comedy, took it up, and ended up performing an acclaimed show at the Edinburgh Fringe all about me. (laughs) Revenge, feminists, revenge. (laughs) And who was that? I'm I'm not going to (laughs) say. Joan Rivers. (laughs) I would love it if Joan Rivers had asked you out. And you'd gone, yeah, I would have gone out if Joan Rivers had asked me out on a date. I definitely would have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She, firstly, very sexy. Secondly, you're right, there would be good material. <laughs> Sadly, way out of your league. So, <laughs> dream on. Fair enough. Okay, I'm a feminist, but every single teddy I've ever owned has been male, I've realised. <laughs> and I own a lot of teddies. <laughs> do you still have a functioning menagerie of teddies? Um, I don't know, what do you mean by functioning? I mean, I definitely have a menagerie. Uh, and I, I definitely talk to them on a regular basis. That's a functioning menagerie. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we in the industry call a functioning menagerie. Yeah. Definitely, if a human sometimes wants to sleep in my bed, I say, I'm afraid you can't because there are too many teddies in there. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a harem. <laughs> it's a bit of Funct- that. Functioning <laughs> harem menagerie. <laughs> I am a feminist, but I went to the uh, Women's World Cup this year, which I call the Women's World Cup sometimes. <laughs> uh, and I was in the crowd, and which was basically made up of lots of uh, women and girls, not many men there, and I loudly mansplained that the referee had stupidly got a very, very simple rule wrong. And it turned out when I got home and I Googled it that they changed the rule this year, and I was completely wrong. <laughs> Did you shout, the ref must be a girl? Well, the ref was a girl. <laughs> yeah, but that... And yeah. It, that was clear to everyone in the audience, actually. And actually, they don't call it an audience. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think footballers learned... get off at the end and go, what a great audience we had in tonight? <laughs> I learned a lot that day. <laughs> when I went to the football, I called it interval, and that's not right either. <laughs> interval. And I also said we had very good seats at the stalls. <laughs> Because we're at the front, and they said no. Not quite. I'm a feminist, but my fiancé has so far done 80% of the planning for our wedding. And I have a sneaking suspicion that by the time of the big day, that'll be more like 90%. (laughs) But she sometimes organises events for work. Not that it's work being engaged to me. (laughs) Although sometimes it could arguably be defined as that. There. It's always good. It's always good to end on a really clear statement. Yeah. <laughs> what parts of the wedding are you doing? I've booked the photographer. And I, I, oh, sorry, I can't make that day. Oh, James. <laughs> um, uh, Saying I do is that the bit you're doing? I'm doing a bit of that. Yeah, yeah. a bit of that. Um, are you writing your own vows? 
uh, are we? <laughs> she's gone. Yeah. I think well, your wedding planning's taken care of itself. Now she's just. I left. don't blame her. We had a good run of it. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited that I'm no longer the asshole at the table. <laughs> It's a da- I'm a feminist, but it's a dangerous game for me to play. <laughs> oh, it's just throwing your matches and watching your fingers burn. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I really wanted to hold Dan's beer. <laughs> As a bit <laughs> well, I have another real one. Um, I'm a feminist, but uh, when I had to wear a nice evening gown for a party, I refused to wear my maternity bra. I thought I'm going to wear one of my posh nice bras from pre-baby. Only when everyone was being really friendly to me, I realised it's because my boobs are hanging out because I was wearing inappropriate underwear. <laughs> so I'm a feminist, but I flashed people by accident. Yeah. <laughs> With the maternity bra, because it pops down. No, because I should have been wearing a bra that fit me, but I was like, I want to wear a pretty bra so it looks mm. nice with my dress. But unfortunately, it was so pretty, my breasts couldn't wait to escape from them. <laughs> um, and really, I was with my partner, and I was like, your friends are really nice. And she's like, yeah, because I can see your nipples. And I was like... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but, so they weren't very nice at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the very first episode of No Such Thing as a Guilty Feminist coming to you live from King's Place. <laughs> My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Deborah Francis White, Athena Koblenu, Andrew Hunter Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Athena. Sure, okay. The homey warriors, whenever they left their compound, were followed by a servant who rang a bell. This alerted men to keep their distance and avert their eyes at all times. It's good, isn't it? It's amazing. I'd like to bring that in in comedy. (laughs) (laughs) You want everyone to avert their eyes as you're performing? No, I want men in the green room to avert their eyes when female comedians approach, and I think we should have a bell. Yeah, someone in front of us. I told these three not to act so inappropriately in the green room, and yes. <laughs> this of all places, I can't believe we did there, that. There was no bell, that's the problem. We forgot the bell. I'm not surprised, by the way, because these warriors were incredibly fierce. Uh, they were sort of battle-hardened, and they synthesised to other people's pain, so they would like, throw their enemies off of like, buildings and onto spikes and things like that, which is really interesting, because like, you'd probably avoid eye contact with them anyway. You wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't need the bell. Is it true that if you touch them, you were sentenced to death? That's yes, why I read it. it, it that was entirely true. Wow. Um, so again, you wouldn't need the bell. Um, Ga- <laughs> games, of, uh, games of it would have been extremely right. frazzling affairs. There's people standing still going, oh, I've got to do my shoelaces up again. <laughs> they were amazing. I didn't know about these people. So they're in like modern-day Benin, weren't they? Yeah, uh, what's uh, known, so the country was known as the Homie, which is modern-day Benin, you're right. Um, and we call them Amazonians. This is a misappropriation. They were from the Fon people of the Homie, but we could say Amazonians because of the fictional Amazonian people, and Europeans like to do stuff like that, I guess, just a raise. 
<laughs> just, just a thing. It happens a lot. Um, but they, it is really true. Now, apparently, it's not really a matriarchal thing. It was just because the homey people were outnumbered by the people around them. So specifically the Yorubas, who used to beat them up all the time because they were outnumbered in population about, by about 10 to 1. So they thought, well, how can we have a bigger army than them? And that's why they recruited women. And they were really fierce, and they were really feared. Um, so feared, in fact, that they even almost defeated the French who wanted to colonise the land. They were the last people standing, which is incredible. And the last feat they accomplished, I guess, before colonisation was to sort of kidnap uh, French soldiers or lure them into their tents and then stab them with their own bayonets. Um, and is that like in the 20th century even? Was that, um, this that was 19th century, 19th century um, yeah. but some survived to the 20th century. So I think the last surviving warrior lived to the 70s, which wow. is incredible. Wow. You'd feel very suspicious, though, as a French soldier, if a woman was trying to lure you into her tent and you say, oh, great, and you start putting your bayonet down. She says, <laughs> oh, no, 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 bring the bayonet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be needing that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, ab- you're absolutely right, um, but men. <laughs> you know, just what you like. <laughs> I read that they had a switchblade that was capable of cutting a man in two. Wow. Oh, Going to need a big old safety cover on that, aren't you? <laughs> that, I read that they had razors. I think this might have been the same thing. A razor that was up to three feet long, although a switchblade makes more sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're both cutty-cutty things, aren't they? They are, I suppose <laughs> so. It'd take a while if it was just a switchblade, just like sort of <laughs> like a hard bit of butter that has been in the fridge for too long. <laughs> for our big Guilty Feminist live shows, which I think are more now like uh, feminist cabaret, I have been thinking of getting a feminist magician who cuts a man in half and doesn't bother to put him back together. <laughs> <laughs> just leaves him on the stage. The end. <laughs> It's a good idea I'd go to that show. I'd volunteer some people for it. (laughs) Um, They were really good at cutting people in half, though, weren't they? So decapitation was their specialty. Uh, They loved doing that. And then not only that, they would drink the blood of their enemies. That was the thing to do. So you'd stab them or decapitate them, often chopped off their genitals, and then you'd drink the blood off your sword. And also, they had to scalp their enemies when they killed them. And so when they came back from battle, they brought a load of people's scalps with them to display to the king. Although apparently you couldn't, sometimes there's not time to take off someone's sort of head in the heat of the moment in battle and you have to run along. But if you had the time, you were expected to do it. Oh, oh so you wouldn't drag the whole body with it and just try and hide that when you got there? No, no, no. you would just leave the whole thing, I imagine. Yeah. I think it was too, the reason you scalp people is to show how many people you've killed. Yes. Because you can't carry all the corpses back. In the Bible, uh, at one point, uh, I can't think... David, King David, was asked to bring back the bollocks of the men to demonstrate. Yeah. Hold on, Reverend what? Kate Harford, no, I know, Forskins. is in tonight. Samson had to bring Forskins. Yeah. Wasn't it the Kate? Reverend, I know Reverend Kate Harford's in tonight. Reverend Kate Harford, could you fill us in? The foreskins of the Philistines, and it was Samson. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> cool. It's always important to have a reverend in the house. <laughs> um, and did they do it because it alliterates so well? <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> We're going to need the spleens of the Sumerians, the bollocks of the Babylonians, the foreskins of the Philistines. Could you imagine, just take my fingers? No. <laughs> no, we like a challenge. My fingers are... No. <laughs> 
Um, do you know who it was who told us about this, who originally told us about this fact about that you started with? It was um, Richard... I'm going to tell you without giving you a chance to guess. Uh, it Richard... Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Someone called Richard Burton? It was it? Richard Burton. Ah, yeah. Richard Burton. He of the Karma Sutra, so not the actor, Richard Burton from the 20th century. Uh, Richard Burton, who brought the Karma Sutra to the English-speaking audience. So, you know, a, a sexy man, a sex... A, a man who brought some sexiness. <laughs> I think it's all right. It's a feminist man. space. You're allowed to fancy all Richard oh Burton's. <laughs> Thank God. Own it. Own it. All right. So, all right. Look, I fancy Richard Burton, the 19th century one, not the 20th century one. <laughs> Do you? Can I just say that's such a no such thing as a fish pinup? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? I really fancy Richard Burton. Oh yeah, he was quite hot in his day with yeah. Elizabeth Taylor. No, not that one. <laughs> one from 1854. He was terribly bookish. <laughs> the well, facts he had on sexual positions. <laughs> oh. He's no Mr. January, Pliny the Elder, but he's, yeah, pretty hot. <laughs> I was reading a book uh, which mentions the Dahomey Amazonians, as they were. The, this book was Women and War, and it's a book about, you know, all the times women have got involved in war across the centuries. And the Dahomey, apparently, they spent their leisure time, I'm quoting directly here, drinking alcohol, dancing and singing songs proclaiming that the men would stay in Dahomey planting crops while they would defeat and eviscerate their prisoners. <laughs> I meet the job description of, of that job. Brilliant. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was reading more about women going into war, and there's a bit of a myth that the Dahomey uh, warriors were the only female army, because there's been loads. In fact, the Russians had one at the end of World War I. So obviously, if you're conscripted into an army, you're like, oh my gosh, another battle. But if you've never been allowed to fight, um, you go into that battle with more enthusiasm, which is why they recruited women at the end of World War I. And there's an actual battle, I've got the name here, I'm saying it wrong. It was called the Kerensky Offensive, and the women fought so bravely because they were just happy to be there. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is genuinely true. They, the guys were like, oh, hey, we have to go over the top. Well, you know what, I've just got to do my shoelaces. But the women were like, ah! <laughs> They've been waiting their whole lives for the opportunity, because um, it was used as propaganda to make people enthusiastic about fighting. I think actually every woman in this audience should go out and eviscerate or destroy someone tonight. <laughs> in a very real way, as the guilty feminist is producing these shows, we would make it very clear that we do not wish that. <laughs> and that was a joke. And if anybody is to commit a crime, it is in direct contravention with our wishes. <laughs> Earlier than no such thing as a fish, listeners. Um, <laughs> please tweet us the photos. <laughs> though I do think there's something in this the men are getting their shoes on and the women are like, because when we had an F- expert on about the suffragettes because I'd, I'd read books about it it just seemed like women had been so buttoned up and they'd had to sit around doing needlepoint and playing pianoforte how much of it was an excuse to make some noise and she said oh yeah like women had had to be so quiet and demure when the opportunity came to tie themselves to a building or smash a, throw a brick through a window oh absolutely yeah. let, let us at the whoever who, who, who are we at war with now Europe. Let us at them. <laughs> yeah! We're at King's Cross right now, right? So let's just get on a train to Paris and just... Yeah, get the foreskins off the French. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought my switchblades. <laughs> okay, it's time to move on to... Oh, our next act... It's time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that women in the 19th century had inflatable skirts which they could deflate to go through doorways. 
But inflate in swimming pools? Why, why the inflatable element? Well, this is a thing called the, uh, the crinoline, uh, which is a particular kind of garment. And there was a, a, about a 15 or 20 period of crinoline mania in the UK. In fact, in lots of Europe and America too. And it's, if you ever see the pictures of the, the Victorian women with the huge hoop skirts, that's a crinoline, basically. And they started off just being very thick, uh, thick sort of horsehair, but they were so heavy and sweaty that that created problems. So people started, you know, just like literally problems of moving around. It was exhausting. It was tiring wearing them. <laughs> what Please, I... Give us more details. Yeah. <laughs> Would they be problems of the gynecological kinds? Oh, I don't, I don't know, because they were also, they were sort of supported in hours, because you were wearing about 10 petticoats anyway, so it was just to get They were gynecological out. problems, man. 10 petticoats and scaffolding, yeah, you're going to get hot and sweaty down there. Right. Yeah. Um, so they thought, well, let's build a frame, let's build some scaffolding so we can do a proper job on this, you know. And they, they had a range of solutions, so there were cane frames, although they were prone to suddenly snapping and twanging, and that was, that was unpleasant. Uh, there was also, there was a rubber tube frame, and this was the inflatable one, where you had a little sort of, um, like, you know those uh, inflatable things? Uh, <laughs> right, good, you're all with me. Rubber ring. So, you know, they have a little, they pop open and then you blow into them to yes. blow up the rubber yeah, ring yeah, yeah. or whatever. Or the, like, like a unicorn. Yeah, like, exactly, yeah. yeah. Armbands is what I was thinking of. So, right. anyway, they would have a sort of little armband popper thing. And uh, if you were a, a wealthy lady, you would have a maid blow up with a pair of bellows this inflatable frame. <laughs> cool. And then if you had, came across a very narrow doorway, you could just go. <laughs> But then does your maid have to follow you into the next room to blow you up again? Yeah. It was a short-lived fad for exactly, exactly the reason. It was just a load of women stuck in a room not able to get out again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there must have been a lot of women who got out of compromising positions. What is Lord Fontaldoodle doing on his knees? Oh, he's just blowing up my crinoline. <laughs> he seems to be under the skirt. Well, yes, that is where the bath is. <laughs> it must have been. I don't know why his name is Lord Fontaldoodle, but it just... <laughs> what popped into my head. <laughs> Do you know, I read a book uh, uh, that included some of this stuff because um, Brian May from Queen wrote a book called uh, Crinoline Fashion's Most Magnificent Disaster. What? Wow. Yeah, true story. Really? Yeah. He's not the obvious one. And he actually says, I don't give a fuck about fashion. He said, I just found, he found a picture or something. It was one of those Victorian things. You he know, does. He's really into those. He's stereoscopic things. Yes. yes. And he found this amazing one of crinolines and he ended up writing a book Fashion's most magnificent wow. disaster. And there were all sorts of interesting things in it, but the, what I found most interesting uh, was that the, uh, the steel rings in crinolines used to snap, and lots of people had internal injuries from them. Um, up to 300 people a year died because the crinoline would get in a fire and they'd catch fire. But once, there's only one recorded injury, one of the steel rings snapped and caused a male companion to be stabbed in the eye. Ooh. Now, I would question again how close he was to the crinoline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. They were dangerous, but they also could be lifesavers. There was a story in 1885 of a woman who was on a suspension bridge, I believe it was in Henley, and she was uh, sick of life and she wanted to end it. So she threw herself off the bridge, but because the skirt was so big and the material and frame so strong, it sort of acted slightly like a parachute <laughs> and slowed her her descent to a point and also guided her away from the water <laughs> and she landed on a muddy bank um, 
and survived, and she lived into old age. So yeah. it's that was on the Clifton suspension bridge, wasn't that's it? Right. Bristol. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I think they should be reintroduced in first class on aeroplanes instead of life jackets. Mm. Like, do not inflate like before you leave the plane. Obviously. <laughs> well, you've got Lord Fontaldoodle. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> under your seat, you will find Lord Fontaldoodle <laughs> and your Quindle. Who inflate you? <laughs> Well, the problem is they were just so big, right? So it would be difficult to get them on a plane even. So if you would go to like a dancing house or something like that, they would charge you more depending on how big your skirt was. No. Because you wow. were taking up more space on the dance floor. Really? Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's like woman spreading, basically. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It actually says that in the Brian May book. It Does gave it? women a lot more power, and it was the equivalent of today's manspreading. Was, wow. uh, it, yeah, because you take up space. You also you got dogs stuck up there sometimes. <laughs> So they were so big. Yeah, like like sometimes a little dog would just crawl inside and then couldn't get out again. You know, like what? (laughs) You know, like a little dog would get caught up in the skirt. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Because it's for the dog. It's like a yurt. Yes, exactly. (laughs) He thinks he's on some hipster holiday in the Isle of Wight. (laughs) But you get all sorts. It must be like when you're a street cleaner, just collecting everything. (laughs) (laughs) On the street, you get home and you've got all sorts in there: wallets and handbags and And somebody else. Else's Pekingese, <laughs> yes. not to mention Lord Fontal Doodle. Yeah. <laughs> they were you they, they were used for smuggling as well, I believe. They? Yeah, because yeah. you've got a lot of real estate under there, so you can put things under there. So there's an account that uh, French toll gates seized items from under crinolines that included twelve partridges on one occasion, <laughs> um, a hare and three rabbits, thirty. How many turtle doves? <laughs> <laughs> 32 pounds of tobacco, 30 pounds of gunpowder, alarming, and on one occasion, four bladders containing about six gallons of alcohol. Wow. This, is big, this is a big smuggling opportunity. So yeah. Yeah. when you go to the club and you don't want to buy any alcohol, yeah. <laughs> just fill it up with miniatures, brilliant, bring them back. Yeah. And they feel too awkward to search underneath them. The bouncer's not going to want to shove his hand up your skirt, so you're probably safe. Why did we ever get rid of them? They sound amazing. Yeah, they sound <laughs> I'd like to bring them back. It's true, now we don't even get pockets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we complained we'd have pockets, but we had crinolines and we gave them up. Vivian Westwood did bring back the mini crinny in the 1980s, but it didn't take off. When did we get rid of them? Do we know? Well, they became less fashionable in about 1870. They were replaced by, I think, a crinolinette, which was, <laughs> it was, they didn't get rid of it all in one. They sort of made it smaller and then eventually it faded away. Yeah. And did that, uh, the inflatable, did that actually sort of pave the way for? the armband like it was that yes it was a direct direct link well it's just yeah i can't think of anything older that you know no children children were taught to swim in an upturned crinoline for many years (laughs) that came from using animal bladders blown up to keep you afloat okay (laughs) okay it's just good to ask because i know everyone was thinking it and i thought There were quite a lot of other restrictive or or weird female fashions around this time. Uh, So round about the time that the crinoline was going out of fashion and these huge skirts were going out of fashion in the turn of the 20th century, really, then hobble skirts came in. Do people know what hobble skirts are? No. I didn't, but I don't know about... Yeah, okay, some people do. So hobble skirts were designed by a guy called Paul Poiret 
who was, he, people kind of love him, feminists love him, because he liberated women from the corset. So he designed these looser dresses around 19, like between 1910 and 1920, and women were allowed to now not wear corsets, had a different fashion to that. But at the same time, he introduced the hobble skirt, which was basically a skirt, which at the bottom, you had like a rope or a cord tied around your ankles, which was exactly, it was called that because they used a hobble for horses when you're breaking in a horse to stop a horse running away. And so women had to sort of hobble around. They couldn't move at all. And he said proudly, because everyone thought he'd liberated women from the corset, he said, yes, I freed the bust, but I shackled the legs. So next time you thank Paul Poiret... Watch, watch your step. Yes. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Literally. Um, I've remembered what Brian May was looking at. It was 3D uh, stereoscopic images of women falling over in <laughs> giant skirts um, because apparently Victorian husbands uh, used to get annoyed at how much these crinolines cost and uh, because women were not allowed to work or own property or have anything, the husbands had to pay for them. And so men found it apparently incredibly funny to laugh at these 3D pictures of women in giant skirts trying to get on omnibuses or bending over and showing a flash of ankle. And Punch also used to take the piss. There was lots and lots of... uh, images in Punch magazine of women getting things caught in their skirt or knocking something over or probably having a dog. Yeah, I think there. actually some of these stories that we've been recounting might have been parodies, for instance, oh. because people did like to take the piss of this fashion quite a lot. Yeah. You've Been Framed was a real loss to the 19th century, wasn't it? That's <laughs> <laughs> basically that. <laughs> I'd, watch, I'd watch half an hour of women tripping over their crinolines, and maybe that's anti-feminist. It probably is. That's my I'm a feminist, but I would watch a You've Been Framed of women falling over their crinolines. But that's literally what it was, because there were framed photos at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you would go to a show of You've Been Framed, where it's just frames of, oh, yeah, that's... That's hilarious. Or you... Comedian of the time, just making some pithy, oh, what a dick kind of comment. Um... Do you think they'd have maybe ten pictures next to each other of the woman gradually falling over, and if you ran past them really fast, it's, it's like a little movie, You're isn't right, it? yeah. Yes, yeah. I do think that. <laughs> I do too. You've been framed and deported to Australia. <laughs> uh, we need to move on to our next fact. You guys all ready to do it? Let's do it. Cool, let's do it. Okay. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It is time for fact number three, and that is Chizinski. My fact is that in the 19th century, letters at the dead letter office all had to be opened by men in case they contained immoral content, which women couldn't be trusted with. (laughs) Rightly so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I make my boyfriend open all of my post. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> do you, by boyfriend, do you mean menagerie of teddies? <laughs> <laughs> it's very impressive they can do it. They've got these thick paws, but even so... <laughs> amazing. Uh, no, this is... Uh, so a lot of women worked in the post office in the 19th century, which was very unusual, but it was when the American Civil War came around, so this was in the US, then all the men went off to war, and women had to replace them in certain jobs. And working in the dead letter office, where letters that haven't been able to reach their recipient are sent, that was one of the jobs that women did, and they would get paid less than half what all the men would get paid there, and it was partly because they were denied the higher paid what they called mechanical work which is basically literally opening letters, takes some real strength. And <laughs> it, was, it was because, apparently, immoral things are sometimes found in the mail, and to see those things would, it is supposed, corrupt the morals of women. And so they weren't allowed to do it. But the, I read, to begin with, they did. So in 1825, they were working there, and they actually outnumbered men at the time. And the idea of it was that they were effectively detectives. It was the idea yeah. of where did this letter come from, let me suss it out, let me look for markings, let me look for hidden codes as to where this was uh, originated from, and it was detective work. It was Absolutely, and it still is. At the Dead Letter Office, which is now in Belfast on Tomb Street, which I really like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's such a cool job. They're still there, and they're the only people in the country who are legally allowed to open other people's posts. So if you work at the Dead Letter Office, that's when it's last resort. There was no return to sender address. They haven't tracked down the address anywhere else, and it finally gets there, and they're allowed to peel it open. Mm. It was mostly women working there because they were more honest, and they also had um, priests working there. They did, yes. That That was earlier on, I think, yeah. Because they are famously squeaky clean. (laughs) (laughs) Is it illegal to open other people's posts? Oh. Yeah. Yes, why? Yes. It's very illegal. Oh, yes. Why do you ask, Deborah? No, no reason. I just noted. <laughs> like everybody's. Yeah. Well, even if it's yes. an old neighbour and you don't know where they are and the mm. letter looks interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's your husband's. Especially. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's... but don't worry. There will have been such a spate of eviscerations after this podcast that no one's going to chase you down for. <laughs> Open letters. Excellent. Um, what the... if it's your Teddy's letter and they don't have thumbs? Yeah, well, this is a huge problem I face, obviously, because <laughs> some of my Teddies don't, so they're just piling up in my room. Um, the Ted letter offers. Uh... Uh... Don't That's groan so at that. Cute. If you'd thought of it, you would have made it. <laughs> <laughs> there was a woman called uh, Patty Lyle Collins who was... Uh, she wasn't British, she was American, actually, and she was the... Sort of star player in the American dead letter office. So she allegedly she handled almost a thousand letters a day and tracked them down. And wow. this was this wasn't opening other people's posts. This was if you had a really confusingly addressed envelope and mm-hmm. you thought, where is this even meant to go? She would 
probably no. So if the postal workers had no idea, they would hand it over, and if it came to her desk, she would solve it. So she spoke half a dozen languages. She had a really esoteric knowledge of historical and geographical associations and all of this. So, for example, she once got given a letter that was addressed to Miss Isabel Marbury and then just Stock, right? And so she said... This needs to go to Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And the only reason she knew that was because she knew that Marbury was a common last name in the town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Wow. She just wow. knew that, you know? So she would solve all these incredible riddles. Imagine if it was like a parking ticket. You'd be like, oh, God. <laughs> that woman. Give it up, man. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> we, all, like, we spend a lot of time kind of slagging off the 19th century and the 20th century, but there's lots of things women couldn't do in recent times because you know, we have to be protected from them. One of the things, like, I didn't know this, we weren't allowed to open a bank account until 1975, presumably to protect us from direct debits, which <laughs> I personally can't stand. Um, but I think that's quite incredible. So up until maybe 30, 40 years ago, we've been like prohibited from doing very basic things. Yeah, you needed a man to sign to say that you're allowed to do it or something like Preferably that. Preferably a priest. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. Preferably a rich man. Um, <laughs> I, that is unbelievable. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Crazy. 75. And mortgages as well. We had to have our father or our husband, and if neither of those were available or willing, too bad. God. But yeah. I guess outside of all those examples, it's been quite peachy, right? This is a chill ride. This is the most devastating one, okay? Up until 1982, we could have been refused service for spending our own money in a pub. Could you imagine? Whoa. Could you spending our own money in a pub and they wouldn't take our money and you're dying for a gin and tonic? You know okay. those inflatable uh, dresses? Someone should have designed an additional inflatable man that's attached to it. <laughs> uh, right, you could quickly yeah. pop up at the bar. That's funny, because I was thinking a straw from the inflatable bit so you could just sip the gin and tonic from the outer ridge, then you don't need a man. That's true. That is true. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. that, I bet that was a thing. I bet that was a crinoline hack that we don't know about. <laughs> Um, just back to um, the Postal Service very quickly. Um, so jumping a bit ahead of the 19th century, 1909, um, the, so you always used to be able to send weird things through the post. Uh, one of the things that you could send was yourself, humans. You could send humans through the post. And in 1909, two suffragettes used to send themselves by royal mail all the time on a same-day courier service to 10 Downing Street so that they could personally deliver their messages to the Prime Minister. <laughs> they would just pop themselves in the mail. That's really good, because you know when your package arrives and you're not in, if you're yourself, you just go to the pub or something. <laughs> and, and then you wait until someone is in. It's just so much better than, you know, behind the bin. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to have really low self-esteem if you choose to leave yourself behind the bin. <laughs> but I think you'd have to be in a box, Athena. I don't think you just put a stamp on your dress. Oh, right. You don't just put a stamp on yourself. But and then... You would just ride with the postman. Yeah. That's how they did it. And sometimes with children as well, apparently this is what happened. There were definitely photos of children who were posted. And then they would just kind of sit alongside the postman on, on his little bike on the way to the house. Yeah. Wow. Um, some jobs that um, were specifically for women, um, or one job in particular, uh, there was a lady called Yelena Ryzhevskaya. Uh, she was a Soviet uh, in the Soviet army. And um, when Hitler died, they wanted to get his teeth back to show that it, he had definitely died. And they gave them to her in a jewelry box to make sure that they got safely back to Russia. And the reason was, because she was a woman, she was considered less likely to get so drunk she would lose them. Oh. <laughs> 
They had not seen Bridget Jones's diamond. <laughs> hey, isn't it the case that we just, dentists just confirmed that Adolf Hitler is dead? No, really? Uh, I don't know. Did you I not see that news story? There was something about that, yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's the same pair of teeth. I, I imagine so. he only had one pair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he might have had decoy teeth going around. Who knows? But they, 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 he was like a shark, wasn't he? They just kept growing. <laughs> so I read a story that dentists got a hold of a pair of his teeth yeah. and they can officially confirm that he is, he is dead. But, well, either I that mean, or he just what? pulled some teeth out and threw them in the bunker. But hang on, you can't tell... Wait, how, so, hang on. How can you tell that someone's died if you've just got one of their teeth? Because I guess they're probably going, well, this tooth is as old as the Second World War. Yeah, but there, uh, could, right, be, right, right. But there could be someone in Argentina with false teeth, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. Thanks, Chase. <laughs> I wasn't sure of what I was saying, but that actually makes genuinely more sense. He climbed into that ditch, he pulled all his teeth out, he put them in a bag, and he caught a flight to Argentina. That's I the probably posted theory. himself to Argentina, probably. <laughs> posted Just himself, <laughs> along with a couple of suffragettes. They did not get along well in that package. Now, that, that is a sitcom I want to see. Goobin' <laughs> 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 um, I've just been reminded, because you mentioned teeth. Teeth and posting. So the dead letter office in the 19th century was such an impressive feat of these people searching through tens of thousands of letters a day, mostly women, that they turned it into a museum because people really wanted to visit and watch them do it. So from the 1850s, it was a museum, the dead letter office museum. And people would come in and they'd admire the skills of the blind readers, they were called, which are what Andy and James were talking about, these women who could decipher the worst handwriting. And they also would go around the exhibits, which were things that had been lost in the post, and look at them and look for lost stuff. Look at those teeth. Who did they come to? Um, Well, there was a man who recognised his own false teeth. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Was his name Adolf? (laughs) Say your mind. Do you think think maybe he just needed false teeth and he was like, I'll take those. He just took them back. They gave them back to him. He'd sent them to his dentist for a bit of repair work and they'd got lost in the post on the way back and wandering around the museum on a lovely Sunday out, he was like, oh, they look a lot like mine. And he took how it out. That is know? amazing. I don't know how you recognise your own false teeth. Oh, it's like, it's like a, a messed up version of the Cinderella story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's basically... The prince Whoever goes around these the... teeth do the fit... Be my bride. Yeah. <laughs> the prince goes around the country. Uh, you know, the ugly sisters are saying, oh, it fits here, it fits here, look. And he goes, no, it doesn't fit there. That's a pre-modern, it's clearly an incisor, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Wicked. Um, I've just, I just wondered if I would be able to, if I saw my own teeth, recognise them no out way. of context. No way. Do you not think? Oh, maybe you would. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Wow. What a backtrack. (laughs) Wow. What happened in your head in that two seconds? I know what happened. He just thought, shit, I'm on the guilty feminist. I've just told a woman she can't do something. (laughs) No, you'd be amazing at it. I just thought, I I thought, well, actually, I... It it was bad. I thought you were saying, oh, because your teeth are yellow. They're not. (laughs) They're not. It was not. He looked at me and he thought, no, your teeth are recognisable for anyone. Yeah. (laughs) Go on. Do you want me to... (laughs) Yeah, go on. Look, I can account for the... Dad, is it time to move on? (laughs) No, James, I want to tell them. (laughs) 
I thought. Okay, no. so it is time <laughs> to move on to our final absolute bullshit no. fact of the show. Let him account for Come himself, on, Andrew. I was just thinking that my, my, my two front middle teeth are a bit bigger than the teeth on either side, and if push came to shove in a museum, I probably would be able to have a crack at... Like, if there was a tooth line-up, some sort of weird... I don't know if I there just... There is also... no way you could do that. I th- I... I'm allowed to say it to you, you see. <laughs> I, I, I would... I think I might. If, it, like, if I got five sets of teeth... I, would, I think I'd be able to tell which ones are mine. Therefore, well, I think if Anna people be able can to do that, that is a game show that we should make. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sponsored by Colgate. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, tooth let... or Dare? No. Yes! <laughs> ah. oh, tooth or very Dare. Good. Very, very strong. Good. Very good. Okay, well, we should actually move on um, <laughs> to our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that men who harass professional mermaids are known in the industry as merverts. <laughs> we may need you more information. You shouldn't be laughing at that, people. It's a very serious thing. Yep. Uh, if you could the name is funny, though. Out of that, please. So um, you get um, professional mermaids in America, especially. Um, they work at theme parks and aquariums, and they get a lot of unwanted attention from men. And they all actually club together and manage to stop these men from doing things, especially online. They kind of report people en masse. Um, but the word that they use is merverts, and it's quite funny. <laughs> it makes sense. And <laughs> as a word, it doesn't make sense to harass the mermaids. I don't think they should do that. Uh, I've, you've got to have good comebacks. So I was reading an interview with one of these mermaids who said she works at children's birthday parties, like you were saying, and it's generally a family-friendly event. And then uh, she had a guy approach her at one point when she was doing her mermaid stuff in front of a bunch of kids and saying, real mermaids don't wear tops. You know, don't take your top off, which is nonsense. If real mermaids were real, they would wear tops. And anyway, uh, she basically shouted at him at the top of her lungs, according to her, this is a family event, and if you want to see topless women, go to a strip bar. And apparently he immediately went incredibly red and ran away. Ah. Well, he could have gone to see a play, um, which has uh, been described as suitable for merverts, um, which was called Splish. Have you heard of Splish? Oh, wow. So, like the Tom Hanks film Splash, right? Yeah, but not. And it's... um, (laughs) It was a play that was done in 2015, and uh, it was done in New Orleans, uh, 23rd to the 24th of October. (laughs) Quick, quick. um. (laughs) So if you're in in the area on the dates described (laughs) three years ago... But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, the idea was it was inspired by showgirls, but also crossed with The Little Mermaid. And it wasn't actually weird. It was meant to be a fun uh, event. Um, no, I'm going to stop talking, actually, because I'm looking, I'm looking what, at what's what? coming up on the Sorry. sheet, and it's not. Was it, a, was it a play? Yeah, it was a play. The idea was to take the audience back to what they said were the liberated days of the 70s, where sexual freedom was a bit more, and it was a play that put it underwater to sort of give it a, a different uh, theme. <laughs> um, and they did, so you could have things like, um, you would pick up a shell phone, they called, and uh, someone would talk dirty to you on that. Um, and, this um, is a play, Dan. This is a sex club. Sounds Sorry. like a stag party. <laughs> <laughs> someone would talk dirty to you on a shell phone. Babe, that's not a play. No. I, no every time. Which that's a play. It's a 
British club, darling. <laughs> Every time I go to the National, I am disappointed by the lack of a shell phone where someone will talk dirty to me. So you are, in fact, a pervert. <laughs> Listen, I only went once, but it's only because it was on once. Um, oh, it's so nice to hand back the asshole conch to you, then. <laughs> make a pitch <laughs> for Starbucks being the original Merverts. Yes. Ooh. And I'll tell you why. Their original logo was a mermaid with two tails and she's holding them up like this, which is, makes it look quite obscene because it makes it look like she's holding legs apart. But it's two tails. Uh, and she's also topless. And after a while, Starbucks went... Why have we got this weird logo? <laughs> but they thought, we can't change our logo now. So they just cropped it. They just went further in. So you will notice the Starbucks logo now is a mermaid sort of holding hands up. But Why has she got hands like that? I it's, thought, isn't she sort of like, hold, it looks like she's holding a pair of kippers or something in her hands. That, well, I'm going to show you the before and after and you will see what it is. Right. It's double-tailed, yeah. meant yeah. to look like legs. Yeah. And now she's got these sort of, yeah, flipper hands. If you pull back, you will see they're not hands at all. She's a double-tailed sex pot. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, so that's original. That's now. Can wow. you see that does look quite obscene, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, although they've, they've sort of weirdly slimmed her down oh, for the modern version as well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, she was much more sort of voluptuous and a little bit more rough-edged in yes. general. Yes, yes. And now she's corporate. Deborah, um, I would just keep that image away from Dan. Um. <laughs> I'm just checking. You can Google at home. Just Google original uh, Starbucks logo. It's got nipples and everything. It does make me question why we've accepted the current Starbucks logo of a woman just holding two wallet like dead fish. Well, I'm going to say this old logo is good because of free the nipple, right? Mermaids. Yeah. Exactly. Like bring the nipple mermaid back, Starbucks, because that's how mermaids should be dressed. Stop yeah. sexualizing. Coffee logos, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say that it has more of a page three feel, though, doesn't it? Where are we putting women's nipples on coffee cups to sort of say, oh... To fix that, we've a... got to do it across the board. We've got to McDonald's topless. Um, <laughs> what, just all of, all the baristas all, have all, to be topless. You yeah, should at least basically. be able to see his nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that there. Um, <laughs> something interesting that the reason we have this mermaid legend uh, is that they were manatees that sailors at night thought were mermaids and Christopher Columbus apparently was sailing near Haiti and he believed he was looking at a mermaid when he saw his first manatee and when he got close enough to note in his diary uh, that they were not as pretty as they are depicted <laughs> somehow in the face they look like men Mm. A manatee does not look like a man or a woman, but he honestly thought he was looking at a mermaid. I'm starting to think Christopher Columbus needs to go to Specsavers because, <laughs> you know, he thought, oh, it's, I'm in India. No, you're not. Um, oh, it's a man. No, it's not. Um, yeah, how did they make him um, head of ships and stuff? Oh, white right. um, <laughs> CEO of ships and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> He'd been at sea a long time in his defence. <laughs> you start to see things, I think. 
Um, and also, Mercals were a thing. There was definitely a period in the Christopher Columbus era where people thought that everything in the sea was a parallel of things on Earth. So they thought that mermaids were a thing, but that also everything else we had on Earth was a thing. So that's why they thought we had sea cows and sea pigs and seahorses, just like we do. Well, on we do have land. all those things. We have all those things, but the they theory don't, holds up. They don't. <laughs> I think they were picturing more of a mooing, uddered cow, uh, but with a tail at the end of it, yeah. and so they thought all these like farm animals lived under the sea as well and they also thought that you know our different jobs that we had were reflected in the sea so people believed that there were sea bishops and sea monks and <laughs> this one and people used to look for them so and this ran until the 1800s and there was a description in an 1817 encyclopedia which describes a bishop fish which literally talks about it being dressed like a bishop. It says it's clad by nature in the garb of a bishop. And it was so impressive, it was taken to the king of Poland, who said, that's very impressive, hello bishop, and like prayed or confessed or whatever, and then sent it back to the sea. Uh, Reverend Kate Harford, can you confirm or deny, are there bishop fish? Bishop fish, are they real or completely made up? Fair. Have uh, have you guys ever had mermaid pie? That was a thing. Really? Uh, yeah. What was in it? Pork. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, um, <laughs> was sorry, made, what was it made by a company called? Mer- no. No, no. It was just it was just called mermaid pie, and there was some debate among clergymen over whether you know you could it was cannibalism or not because it's mermaids. But it, it wasn't. depends just what you're eating, right? Because if you're eating the fish part. Oh yeah, then it's you can only eat the lower half on eat, Fridays. If you eat yeah. the breast, it's like oh, it's like chicken. You can't eat the breast; it's human. So if you're pescatarian, oh yeah, you only eat the bottom <laughs> of the pie. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. If you see yourself munching into a belly button, you've gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> well, that's, that advice uh, is just good for life in is. general, isn't it? <laughs> lost it. Um, should we talk a bit about professional mermaids? Mm. Yeah. yeah, sure. I'd yeah. like to know more about that. Because I, I didn't really know this was a thing, and it's increasingly popular, apparently. Um, there are over a, a thousand in America alone, I believe, and they, like, it is a professional job, and it's a very expensive one to keep up, and it's people, men and women, who feel an affinity with the ocean, often, and who buy these tails, which cost up to three grand, and they weigh 20 kilos. This is a thing in the UK, too and it's increasing as well a week after we record this podcast tonight Bexhill on Sea is going to make an attempt for the a record for the largest ever gathering of people in mermaid and merman costumes they've tried before and they've fallen short so in 2017 they had a go and there were 325 people on the beach but apparently they were unable to get the record because there were extra people on the mermaid beach that were not dressed as mermaids and this made it difficult to count the qualified mermaids. <laughs> there were probably also some fish on there that they could find. Yeah. yeah. I just think, how hard is it to, to tell whether someone's in a mermaid costume or yeah. not? Yeah. Like, it's one of the first things I would notice about someone. <laughs> is it? <laughs> or their teeth. <laughs> <laughs> 
And actually, I think mermaids, like, especially in from about the 16th century onwards, they kind of were bad luck. And in folklore, you have this dangerous women trope where there are certain kind of folklore creatures who embody kind of vengefulness and seductiveness. And they say that it's like causing the downfall of men like Adam and Eve and that kind of thing. Mm. And, and mermaids were in that kind of category, I think. Mm. See, I quite like being a dangerous woman who can lure a man to his death. <laughs> I, I think bring her back. Um, I th- well, I think that probably came about by m- lots of men being lost at sea. Yes. And what do we know men follow? Their erections. <laughs> so it's, it's a sexy woman on a rock with a fishtail representing the sea going, ah, because they were said to be sirens, they had a beautiful voice. But that was originally because the first mermaids were merbirds, uh, or birdmaids, I suppose, oh. because they were birds, and that's why they had beautiful singing voices. Wait, so they were bird women on a rock. Sorry, which half was a bird and which half was a woman? <laughs> <laughs> it must be the singing part is the bird, right? Yeah, so they got, that's what, right. they got the larynx of a bird, but the everything else of a woman. <laughs> Could you imagine like a it's pigeon con- going? Yeah. <laughs> I think bird half at the top, legs below. Wait, so that's <laughs> that's ri- the worst bit because the birds have eyes on like the side of their heads; so they can't even see straight. So <laughs> I did not invent the folklore. I'm just enjoying telling it to you. You definitely, uh, but you would want the wings for sure, right? Oh, sure, you, you want, want the wings, wings yeah. and you want yeah. the singing part, yeah, and then you probably want your own legs. I actually would like bird legs. Would you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That, though, is just a bird, isn't it? <laughs> I'd like... <laughs> it's not really much folklore. It's like, ah, oh, creatures with little claws and wings. These and... years of therapy I've wasted, I could have just worked out at the beginning, I want to be a bird. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I am on at Schreiberland. Deborah? At Deborah FW. At Athena Kablinu. Uh, Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. And James? At James Harkin. And Chazinski? You can email podcast at qi.com. That's right. Or you can go to our group account at Lord Fontadoodle and, uh, <laughs> and at No Such Thing. And you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Uh, guys, that was a great, fantastic first run of No Such Thing as a Guilty Feminist. Thank you so much for being here. Goodbye. <laughs> You have been listening to No Such Thing as a Guilty Feminist with Dan Schreiber, Anna Tashinsky, James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray, Athena Kablenu, and me, Deborah Francis-White. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The producer was Tom Selinsky for The Spontaneity Shop. Music was by Mark Hodge and Emperor Yes. Thanks to Zoe, Sally, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about No Such Thing as a Fish, go to nosuchthingasafish.com. And for more information about The Guilty Feminist and our podcast crossover season, go to guiltyfeminist.com. Okay, we haven't got our theme tune here, so picture it. Don't, don't picture it. Um, <laughs> it's a whole room full of sinusthetes. <laughs> can, can you sing it? Um, okay, so, so, okay, ready? One, two, three, four. Are we starting with the... Uh, we'll, we'll start, start with, with the Okay. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. 
add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com And we're, we're helping, right? Well, well, it sounds like they need the I help. I think you should lead it. We'll lead with the boo, boo, yeah. boos. Okay. Uh, okay, so, and a one, a two, a one. <laughs> boo, 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 boo. 